Thank you, Daryl and Tina, for leading this morning. We're going to be in Genesis, Lord willing, about a month left. <laughs> it's been over two years. We're going to start in Genesis 36, verse 31, and we'll go a good chunk of the way through Genesis 47. Typically, when somebody asks you, how are you doing, or hey, how are you, our responses are pretty good, great, you know, whatever. I grew up um, in in Panhandle and went to a a private Christian school, and there were some super Christians there, uh, as we like to call them, and every now and then, you'd say, how are you doing, and they would give you just this long lecture of their whole life, and nobody likes that. I don't know if you pinned down by those, you're like, how are you doing, and it's just like, well, not great. The goldfish died this morning, and we've been mourning that loss, and later on this afternoon, we have a funeral for him, and it's just all these things that you're like, I didn't need this. But every now and then, somebody, if you'll ask them, and maybe you've heard somebody say this, you'll say, hey, how are you? And they'll say, better than I deserve. It's a response that uh, always catches me off guard. I always, like, I wish I could train my mind to be like, that's how I want to respond, but I always forget to do that, is to respond better than I deserve. See, what we're going to see in this text is we get Jacob again. And Jacob is Jacob. And one of the things Jacob needs to learn, but he also knows a little bit, and we'll see it as we kind of walk through this text, is his whole life is just better than he deserves. And if we step back and we look at the gospel, if we step back and we reflect on the gospel, if we step back and just look at Jesus Christ, one of the things that you and I are going to realize that we know is that our lives are far better than we deserve. So let's pray, and then we're just going to dive in like we always do. God, thank you for today. Help us to not miss that you've given us today. It's so easy to to, to wake up and to go about our day and just not even recognize that each moment, each second is a blessing and a gift that you've given us. God, help us to recognize that we are far better off than we deserve because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love. God, we are beyond anything that we should be. Help us as we walk through your word this morning to uh, encourage our hearts where we need encouragement, to convict us where we need conviction, and to grow us in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we read verse 31, let me set the context for us. For the last 20 some odd years, Joseph has been in Egypt living a life that's been filled with ups and it's been filled with downs, but Joseph never really loses his faith. Well, at the same time, his brothers and his fathers, uh, fathers, whoa, brother and his father have been living a life that's been rough at points. And so Jacob uh, believes that Joseph was the one who was supposed to bear the line of the Messiah. Jacob thinks that Joseph, his son, is the one who's supposed to be the snake crusher. And so when it comes up that the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, it crushes Jacob because Jacob thinks if Joseph's dead, then so is God's covenantal promise. Losing a son is a horrific thing. But losing the son that's supposed to carry the line of the Messiah that's going to save the entire world is, is horrific on a different kind of level. And so this stays with Jacob. And we see this with how he treats his sons. He has his ten sons who are born not to Rachel, and he has his two sons that are from Rachel. Joseph's dead, and then with Benjamin, he's reluctant to let that kid out of his sight, even when he's a teenager. 
and we look at Jacob's life, and we see that now against all odds, this dysfunctional family that sold brothers out, that's done all sorts of other things, now has 70 people, and they find themselves in the midst of this seven-year famine. But because the Lord is good, and because the Lord is sovereign, he takes care of his people. So his people end up in Jesus, and they end up in, in, in Egypt, but they learn that Joseph, the dead son, is not actually dead, but alive. And not only alive, like he is killing it in Egypt. He is the one who's in charge of distributing food and distributing supplies. Nobody is higher up in Egypt except for Pharaoh other than Joseph. And so Joseph brings all of his family down to Egypt. In the previous passage, we saw their reunion where they see each other, they hug. Jacob sees his son Joseph. They cry because that's what Joseph does. And then we move into this passage right here that we're going to come to. So this is verse 31 in chapter 46. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers in my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And so when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and their herds and all that they have and possess, have come from the land of Canaan, and they're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men, and he presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to the brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture land, uh, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know, uh, if you know any able-bodied men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So it's a lot of, of verses right there, but there's an odd thing that happens here. I don't know if you caught it. Joseph is kind of dominating how they're going to talk to Pharaoh. He sees his brothers, he sees his family, and then Joseph comes out and says, this is exactly how we're going to go to Pharaoh, and this is exactly what I want you to say. And it's odd. He says, I want you to tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds, that you're keepers of these flocks, that's what your fathers have been, that's what you're going to do in Egypt, because that's an abomination to the Egyptians. Seems like an odd move to just start out right off the bat with, what we're going to do is something that you count as an abomination, which is a really strong word. It means like to bring horror into somebody's life. What Joseph's doing is he's protecting his family. Pharaoh's already said in Genesis 45 that they can dwell in the land of Goshen. But Joseph knows that the temptation in Egypt is going to be that you're not going to stay distinct. He knows that the temptation when you're not home and you're in a place where you're living, where you look around and you realize that Egypt at this point in time is one of the wealthiest nations on the earth, one of the wealthiest countries in the earth. And in the next chapter, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see it becomes the wealthiest. And so there's things that glitter around them. There's money, all things that can distract from life. Things that can slowly but certainly accommodate us without us even realizing that we're giving up our distinction, that they're giving up their distinction. 
Slowly but surely, Joseph recognizes the temptation is going to be to become a native Egyptian as opposed to a sojourning Israelite. When you hear the word holy, most of the time we hear holy, we think perfection. But holy doesn't mean perfection. It means being set apart or distinct. So God is distinct from us. God is set apart from us because God is perfect and we are not. God is holy. But God's people, First Peter tells us this, are to be holy as God is holy, distinct, to look different in the world. And so what Joseph does is he tells his brothers, they're not a fan of shepherds, it's an abomination. So when you go see Pharaoh, say we want to live in the land of Goshen because we're shepherds. Goshen's a good land, it's a desirable land, it's got pasture land that in the middle of this famine is still able to have grass that's growing for their flocks to eat. But it's also on the east side of Egypt. So if you know your geography and you picture Egypt, Canaan is is up here and it means it's close to Canaan. What Joseph's doing is he's preparing the Israelites for the Exodus. He's saying, you're going to go in the land of Goshen because you're not going to have to walk all the way back through Egypt to go home. You're just going to be right there on the edge, and then you can go back home. And by telling Pharaoh that they're shepherds, Pharaoh has no problem saying, you guys can just go live on the outskirts of Egypt. See, it's important for us to remember that we're faced with similar temptations that the Israelites will be faced with. And it's been a constant theme that we've seen in Genesis. It's this idea that all that glitters is not gold. There's a temptation that whatever we feel like gives us the most satisfaction in life, whatever we feel like we don't have that we need, ends up becoming an idol that we will rearrange and bend our lives around to get to. So it can be financial. It can be security. It can be entertainment. If I only had more money then my life would be easy and complete. So I'm going to rearrange my life so that I can make more money and I can have that because then my life will be complete. Or maybe it's security. If I can feel safe. So I'm going to rearrange my life. I'm going to work my life around all these things to make myself feel safe. Or maybe it's entertainment. I don't want to be bored. I don't want to sit around. So I'm going to do whatever I can do to have these little moments that don't pass me. I'm going to travel. I'll buy the latest game system. I'm going to do whatever it is to keep myself entertained. I mean, this can be anything. We can make idols of anything, a status of kids, of spouses, of happiness, of whatever it is in life. We can make idols out of them. But the reality is that you and I are not called to be of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're sojourners. This means Ira is not home. But that's difficult. Because it feels like home. It's difficult because we can get really comfortable. But another aspect that we need to keep in mind why this isn't home is because sometimes if we think this is home, For unbelievers, like, I get why they're upset all the time. If this is all we have in life, if we think Ira is home, if we think our houses are our home and that's the only thing that we have to live for, then if we miss out on something that we think would better us, I get why you would be extremely frustrated and upset. Like, let's say we're traveling uh, as a family. You're you're with your family. Uh, You don't have to be with me, but you can if you want. It doesn't matter. And suddenly there's this huge snowstorm that rolls in. 
And you look and you realize you don't have that much gas in your car and the snow is falling really heavy and it's kind of hazy beyond you and it it feels kind of like Star Wars with the snow driving through but you can't see very far and you're trying to find a place to stop and, and to get some rest and all of a sudden you see a faint light and it says motel, motel with an M. And so you pull up to this cheap motel, you get a room and do you know what you do? You do not complain about the color scheme in the room. You don't look at the ceiling fan or the curtains and go, man, in the morning when it clears out, I'm going to go to the hardware store, buy the stuff, fix those. We're going to update those things. We're going to spruce this place up. You hunker down and you stay at a heat cheap hotel for a night or two. And you can make it because it's not home. You'll leave. And when your wife's not mad at you anymore, you'll laugh about it later. Because you go home. But the alternative is true, too. You could be traveling somewhere and book a room in a hotel. Get that motel out of here. And you go to the front desk and they say, hey, listen, we've actually upgraded you to the luxury suite. And so you go up to your room. I was trying to think of, like, what is it in a hotel that would be, like, for me, the cream of the crop in a hotel? And so it's like, well, there's a hot tub in the room, obviously. It's got marble countertops. It's got everything fancy that you could ever want in a a hotel room. And so you enjoy it for the day or two that you're there, but you don't get enthralled with all those things because it's not your home. You enjoy it for a night, but it's not permanent. You're going to go home, and when you go home, you're going to lose the hot tub. You're going to lose the maid service. All of those things are temporary. They're not permanent. And so what we see in this passage is it's Joseph setting his family up to remember this is temporary. And it's going to feel like a long time. Their temporary in Egypt was a long time. But the temptation is always to idolize something that isn't permanent. To get worried or to get upset or to get angry because life isn't going your way. But if we think that life is permanent and our home is permanent, then I get why we would be upset about that. That's not who the Lord has called us to be. In the world, not of the world. To be holy means to be distinct, and so we're holy like the Lord. We're distinct from the world. Verse 7. So then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of my years of my life. And they've not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brother and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. I mean, Jacob, right? That dude. At the time this is written, the person who is greater always gives the blessing to the person who's left less. Did you catch that Jacob blesses Pharaoh not once, but twice? 
clearly what Jacob is doing is he's saying, you have all the money, you have all the possession, you have all the authority, you have all the power, you have all of these worldly things, but I have God, I have Yahweh, and he is enough to make me greater than you. So Jacob blesses him twice to point that out. It's a theological statement. While at the exact same time, Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? Which is our equivalent of how are you doing? And you say, good, and then you move on past the conversation. But Pharaoh asks Jacob, well, how old are you? And Jacob goes, oh, I've sojourned 130 years. Few and evil have been my days. 130 is a lot of years. It's a long time to be alive. Jacob does this because of the hurt that happened to his life with Joseph when Joseph was taken, that that's just he's allowed it to define his whole life. Certainly Jacob had bad things that happened to him, but Jacob is not innocent. His name means deceiver, and he did that multiple times. Remember Esau? He's not innocent. Many of his issues are self-inflicted, but that doesn't stop. That doesn't seem to be what his concern is right now. He looks back at his life, and instead of seeing how the Lord took him, Right, remember, he fled his house with nothing but a walking stick, and God showed up to him in the desert. He went and lived, got married to two different women, had all sorts of kids, comes back into Canaan with his father, sees his father, and now he's marching 70 people into Egypt, and he sees none of those blessings and none of those good things that the Lord has done for him. Instead, he just laments about how bad and how short his life has been. All he sees is the hardship. All he sees is the limp that he has, the pain, the struggle. Jacob's a complainer and a whiner. He's a pessimist who claims to be a realist. He doesn't see all the good and gracious things that God has given for him. And let's just be honest. This is our temptation in life too, isn't it? We are people who complain. And all in all, we have pretty blessed lives that the Lord has given to us. We have a great community, not perfect, but great. We have food, we have clean water to drink, we have entertainment at our fingertips. But there's always something to complain about, isn't there? If only blank wasn't this way, if only blank wasn't that way. And you've been through tough times. Everybody has to a degree. But those tough times, those struggles, those circumstances, the, the pain of those trials, those frustrated hopes, those, those difficulties that we walk through are not wasted in God's wisdom. If it were good for you to have the things that you wanted and the Lord didn't give you, then that's what's ultimately good for you. And maybe God will give you those things in the future. Maybe he won't. Maybe he's protecting you from something that you can't see because you're not omnipotent. But God is, and he's not out of control. He is sovereign, and he is good. And so what you and I need to do is to look, and rec- look around and recognize that everything that we have is far beyond anything that we deserve. Our salvation, if you're a Christian, is not earned, it's given. And God saved you not because you are great and because you are awesome, but because God is great and because God is awesome. So what do we have to boast about if our salvation isn't from ourselves? nothing what do we have to complain about if our salvation isn't something that we earned nothing God is far more gracious with you and I than we ever deserve what we deserve is death 
What we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is wrath. But instead, we're given life through the death of Jesus. We're given mercy through the death of Jesus. We're given grace through the death of Jesus. We deserve death, judgment, and wrath, and we receive life, grace, and mercy. Look at what God has done. Look at where God has you. Worship God who displays the good things for us through Jesus, look to Christ and the gospel. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought, uh, bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and that our herds of livestock are are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord except our bodies and the land. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land, by us and our land, are for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land to Egypt for Pharaoh. And all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. For all the people, he had made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on that allowance and Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, see, now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be for your own, as the seed of the field and as the food for yourself and your household, and for the food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it, be, may it please my Lord that we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now that's a lot of information, and it's a big passage that we read. But what we need to see there is something really, really interesting that the Lord does in Egypt. The Egyptian people lose everything, while the Egyptian government gains everything. All of the people's money was spent. All of their livestock was sold to the government. All of their land was given to the government, sold to the government, and then they themselves become servants of the government. They sell themselves into slavery just so that they can have food. So all of this massive empire now is extremely wealthy because they're the only ones with food and they're charging. And so now Egypt is this mega superpower within the world. It's desperate times. But did you catch the Egyptians' response? It wasn't, how dare you take my money? How dare you take my land? How dare you take my my food and me as a servant? They're grateful that this is the arrangement that was made. 
But did you catch who did not get sold into slavery? The Israelites. There's no mention of them needing to go to Joseph again and get any more grain. It's just the Egyptians that are dealing with this. The Israelites in the land of Goshen are living fine. So to the ears of the Israelites that that Moses, the original author of Genesis, is writing, as they're wandering in the wilderness, having just come out of, of Egypt, they're looking at this saying, wait a minute, at one point in time, the Egyptians were enslaved and we weren't? And then that flipped somewhere in our history, and now we're walking like it would, it would perk their ears up and go, what in the world happened? And Joseph gives the Egyptians a good deal. A one-fifth tax was less than the typical amount. The typical amount, if the government owned those things, was one-third of everything you had was the government's. And, and Joseph says, now we'll just do one-fifth. And at the very end of verse 27, did you catch the words that were used? They were fruitful and multiplied. That's a callback to the first command given in Genesis. See, we see the Israelites blessing other nations. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. We see them growing numerically, being fruitful and multiplying. And we see them being told, this isn't your home. This isn't your land. Don't get sucked into Egypt. This isn't where your home is. Your home is in, in Canaan for the Israelites. That's the threefold covenant blessing that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we see clearly here is that God is with his people. It doesn't matter if you're in Egypt or if you're in Ira. God is with his people. And so we can walk in life in a season that can feel politically volatile. We can walk in a season of life where the economy can feel chaotic and broken and shaky. Where inflation is a real thing. We can walk in a season of life where there's these ideologies and these things that people believe that are just extremely far out there and frightening. And we can recognize that God is with his people and he has not left. That in the midst of all of this, God is still working. He's not out of control. And if we're believers in Jesus, and we genuinely believe that, then our life, and our faith, and our attitudes, and our heart, and how we live and interact with a lost world around us should reflect that we trust that the Lord is in control. So we can look at this text and see that, man, God's blessing is far better than anything that we deserve. Everything in Egypt is great, but God's plan is better, so don't get comfortable. Jacob was a blessing. Uh, Jacob was blessed, and he was blessed to be a blessing to Pharaoh because God is better than Pharaoh, and Jacob has God. These Israelites are sojourning while they actually uh, own the land. They're, they're left with nothing, so they get far better than they deserved. See, the reality of one of the things that, that's kind of crept up and just continued to rise in Genesis is that if we're believers in Jesus, then we are blessed to be a blessing. We are saved to be a blessing to other people. 
I said earlier, the reason Jacob got so upset with the thought of Joseph was because he believed Joseph was the one who was going to carry the line of the Messiah, who was going to carry the line of the snake crusher. So for Jacob, when Joseph died, it felt like God's promises were not going to come true. All of his hope died. What could God do if Joseph was dead? And if we look at Joseph's life in Genesis, he's the one person in Genesis, the one person who's given a chunk of, of, of the, the narrative of Genesis that is a pretty morally upstanding person. We can look at the rest of the big-time characters of the, the story of Genesis, the people who lived, and we can see there are some huge fatal flaws that, that rise up in them. Adam and Eve, original sin, right? Never listen to snakes. Noah gets off the ark, and the first thing he does is he gets drunk. Abraham was polygamous and lied to protect himself multiple times at the expense of his wife. Isaac is a passive pushover who never stands up and leads. Jacob is a swindler. And, and he deals with polygamy and so many other things. And what's Joseph's sin that we see? A tattletale? But if you know the Bible, then you know Joseph is not the son of Jacob that God uses to bring the line of the snake crusher. Everything to our eyes should look like it should be Joseph. The Messiah should come from Joseph's line with our eyes. In fact, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Jesus' dad's name is Joseph. I think we're, we're meant to see that Joseph and tie it back to Scripture and saying this is this idea of this son who dies and then comes back and saves his family. From our perspective, Joseph is the one who deserves this. But salvation and God's plan are not about earning it. Salvation and God's plan are what brings God the most glory. So God doesn't choose Joseph to be the one who carries the line of the snake crusher. Do you know who he chooses? Judah. Judah's the brother who speaks up to sell Joseph into slavery. He's the brother who sleeps with uh, he, he's the brother who sleeps with his own daughter-in-law, not realizing it's his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a prostitute instead. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he wants to get her killed, not recognizing that he is the father of that child. He only relaxes when he learns that he is the father. And it seems at this point that the Lord breaks Judah, that he humbles him from his pride, and he begins putting Judah's life back together to be the Israelite that the leaders need. And you know what? It's Judah and Tamar's baby that carries the line of the Messiah. They're a part of Jesus' family. We get far better than we deserve, and Judah doesn't deserve that. But God, by his grace and God, by his mercy, looks at Judah and says, you're not too far gone, and I'm not done with you yet. And it's from this pit of despair. It's from being broken. It's from humility that sin causes in Judah that God begins to work anew in his life. It's from this that God rids Judah of selfish leadership. And that God teaches him humble leadership. So the snake crusher, Jesus, 
100% God and 100% man. And so we look at the Bible and you can read the family trees and see it's Judah and Tamar. But you can look at other people in Jesus' physical family and see that, that a lot of those people that we know their stories of are really broken too. It's filled with people that God redeemed because that's how God brings glory to himself. God's the great physician. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for the sick, for the wounded, for the hurting. And he comes to deal with the biggest issue that you and I have. The biggest issue that you and I have is not that we don't have what we physically want in this world. It's that we live in this constant struggle with our sin. Our sin is rebellion against God. And so Jesus comes and he deals with our biggest issue, our sin. And so on the cross, he bears the wrath of God that we deserve and he imputes to us God's righteousness that we don't deserve and he defeats sin and he defeats death. He crushes the head of Satan on the cross. We defeat sin and so that we now have hope. We're blessed to bless others, and the ultimate blessing in God is Jesus Christ himself. So we can look at this passage and we can say, so we need to be in Jesus and not in the world. Don't be tempted by all that shines. Don't be tempted by all the things that can pull at our emotions and and pull at our hearts. All good things that we have, we must be extremely careful with because our hearts so quickly attach to those good things that they become idols. And we will settle for good things rather than God things. Remember the cross. Remember the gospel. Don't settle. Share the blessing of Christ. I firmly believe that what the Lord is doing is making us aware of our sin and aware of our need for things that aren't going to fix us in the world. I firmly believe that the reason technology has taken off is because it leaves us empty and longing for something to fill us. We have a world all around us, if we're believers, that we recognize is broken and is hurting and is dying for something of value and something of worth and something that has some weight to it. We live in a world that's pessimistic and complains about everything. And I get it. I get why they get so up in arms. If if I thought this life was all I had, I would see how it would be really easy to get upset and to get angry when things don't go exactly the way that I want them to go. But brothers and sisters, if you and I have the blessing of Christ, if we're saved by Christ... They don't need us to coddle them in their complaints. They need us to point them to Jesus. So are you sharing Christ? And here's my challenge. Pick one person that is in your sphere of influence and just pray for them. Invite them to church. Share Jesus with do anything and everything to show them that Jesus is that, that, that show them Jesus because Jesus is better uh, than anything else that they have in life. And without Jesus, all of life is pointless and ends in eternal pain. We have the cure for everything that the world is struggling with. We must stop being stingy and we must stop being embarrassed about it. Be bold in the Lord and watch what happens. Listen, 
today, this evening, we have our, our clays and fillets deal for, for the men and, and sons. And, and how phenomenal would it be if you were praying at that and we show up this evening and the Lord uses eating fried fish and shooting at things that are not really birds to save someone, to grow someone in the Lord so that they come for fish and they leave with the bread of life. Man, God has set these opportunities up all around your life. It's just a matter of recognizing that they're there. You and I get far better than we deserve. And we have that gospel to offer others through Jesus Christ. Let's do so today. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, thank you that you saved us if we're believers who are here not to just sit on our blessed assurances until you take us home. God, you've saved us to be active. You've chosen to use us as a part of your plan, even in Ira. God, I pray that you would help us to love our neighbors enough to recognize that Jesus is the blessing that they need. Help us to speak your words of truth and encourage them where they need encouragement. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. God, I pray for those of us who are here. It's no accident that we're here. God, for any unbelievers that might be here this morning and hear this message, I pray that you would work on their hearts. That you would help them to see that you are far better than anything this world has to offer. God, help them to repent and to believe in you. God, for the believers that are here, I pray that you would encourage us. It's so easy in Ira, America, to just get into the routine of life and to feel like we just live in this small corner of West Texas and that our lives aren't just super significant and we kind of like it that way. But God, you've placed us here for a purpose and a reason. Use us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Derek.